This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I'd love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month and a monthly advanced read and pre-publication author chat. For those on Facebook, I host a special Patreon Facebook group where we all chat books. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. I just posted my summer 2022 reading list with over 35 recent titles that I have read and highly recommend. The list is linked in my show notes to this episode. I hope you will check it out to find some great books to read this summer. Today, I am chatting with Marie Myung Oak Lee about The Evening Hero. In addition to penning The Evening Hero, she has written Finding My Voice, which is widely thought to be the first contemporary set Asian-American young adult novel. She teaches fiction at Columbia, where she is writer-in-residence and faculty at the Center for the Study of Race and Ethnicity. I hope you enjoy our conversation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, Marie. How are you today? I'm great. How are you, Cindy? I'm great, too. And I really enjoyed your book, The Evening Hero, and I learned so much. And I can't wait to talk all about it. I am so excited to be here. And you just had a wonderful New York Times review. I was really excited to see that. And they were just raving about your book. So that had to be exciting. You know, it was not only exciting, I think because... The person was also Asian. They picked up on a lot of things. I've had really wonderful reviews as well, but there were slightly more granular things that they picked up on or even just saying, you know, that Young Man grew up in a town that was north of the line that the Americans made versus Young Man grew up in North Korea. And so I kind of appreciated that kind of sense of, I don't know, sort of like a different perspective while reading it or like an open perspective versus, I don't know, sort of like the tropes that we can often fall into, because actually that's kind of the, one of the reasons that I wrote the book, because even um, when I was teaching at Brown University, I have a lot of historian friends and I had mentioned something about the partition of North and South Korea, and they were completely flabbergasted to find out that it was not the Korean War, that it was World War II, and that it was historians 
not knowing that just made me feel very uneasy. And it made me also think about, you know, we call it the forgotten war. And so it's probably less people are actually like not getting it right versus not thinking about it at all. Or just not having encountered it. And I mean, I was so embarrassed as I was reading your book because I was like, I don't know a lot of this and why don't I know a lot of it? So I was very happy that at least by reading your book, I learned some of it. I'm sure, you know, there's much more I could be learning, but just the way all of that came about and picking the parallel and how random it was and how some people think that that was really Southern Korea, but it's called North Korea because of where the line was split and everything. There were just so many different facts that I felt like I didn't know any of this. I didn't know a lot of this either. (laughs) So yes, exactly. Well, before we dive into all of that, because I'd love to talk more about it, why don't you give me a quick synopsis of The Evening Hero for those that won't have read it yet? Sure. So basically the main It's a tale of one man's journey from growing up in Korea through war. He becomes parentless and then he becomes a doctor. But then kind of against all odds, he's able to immigrate to the U.S. And then seemingly uneventful decades go by. He's married. He has a child. His child becomes a doctor. And then before he knows it, he's 70 years old. And his hospital, which is a rural hospital he's worked his entire American life, closes because private equity through mergers and consolidation has basically just gutted the hospital. And this is actually happening in a lot of rural areas. So he's kind of cut loose. And so his name in Korean means evening hero. And he's kind of, he has also left a secret behind in Korea. And he's wondering if he can just kind of go to his grave with a secret because he has, it happened when he was a child. Except at almost at the same time that he's getting cut loose from the hospital, his he's getting these mysterious letters. And from these letters, he realizes there is somebody who's still there who remembers. And so for the rest of the novel, Jungman is also trying to figure out what what does he do also for work? Because his son works at this goofy startup in the Mall of America. Which just made me laugh the entire time. But then I felt bad laughing because I know there are places like this out there. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh. It's frightening, isn't it? I mean, I've worked yes. on this novel for 18 years. And a couple of times I had to pull back because some of the stuff that I thought was super funny actually came true. And I kind of wanted to keep it in sort of a future-ish speculative <laughs> position. So I'm sure um, a lot of this will come true. And I will say just in terms of, and then... Is everyone going to know what Youngman's secret is in the end? Yes, they will. Well, you packed a lot into this book in a good way. Healthcare, immigration, assimilation or not assimilating, maintaining your own cultural roots. There were just so many different things happening, our crazy, crazy healthcare system. So how did you decide to write the book? Like, where'd the inspiration come from? And it sounds like it took a while, which you mentioned in your author's note as well. That was going to be one of my questions is how long it took you to write it. Well, one of the recent interviews I had, I thought, oh, she got it because I was explaining to her that I'd act, the seed, the very seed of the novel came from. So uh, my son is disabled and has many medical issues. We're in the doctor's office all the time. And so first there's that milieu of being in the doctor's office. And once when we were there, I don't know why the doctor was so chatty and he was telling me about this case of an OBGYN. And this man was such a good doctor that this woman was bleeding out from a condition called placenta previa, which is when the placenta grows over the opening 
um, of the uterus. And so as it stretches, it'll bust and then you'll probably bleed out and you'll probably die and your baby will probably die. Uh, But he was so skillful, he was able to save the mother and the baby. And then he was surprised years later when he was sued by this woman. And he was sued because that was her first baby and she was young. And so she was suing for like loss of fertility. And, uh, well, she won. Wow. Yes. She won the case. His life was ruined. I can't remember. He might have killed himself at the end. And so it made me, I'd already been toying around wanting to write a novel about small village life. And Middlemarch is one of my favorite novels. Um, And so is Sinclair Lewis's Main Street. And so Middlemarch also has a plot about a doctor trying to do the right thing and accidentally not doing the right thing, even though he's good intentions. And then, you know, I thought, well, what if the character was Asian? And then there would be these other tropes, like Asians don't care about life or the Asian butcher kind of thing. So this kind of gives you an idea how, like how the years kind of went by. So I had, I was living in Providence, Rhode Island at the time. So I was haunting the courthouse, making friends with the clerk until he told me about um, a medical malpractice case that was coming up. So I spent a year watching the case. And then I wrote this novel about, similarly about this doctor, small village life, um, loses a case. His father's his father, they're both Korean American. His father's also a doctor. They're both the OBGYNs. So I wrote this whole novel and it, I thought it was pretty good, but it was just not the right novel. I, I kind of can't explain why. It was just sort of, that's not quite what I meant to say. So I went back to the drawing board. And then it just kind of ended up more, it got slightly sillier with a satire. It was the same characters. And then what happened when I started writing more about Korea and North Korea, that occurred a lot because of the election in 2016. And specifically, I actually remember the specific moment where I thought, you know what, I kind of have to pull back first Satire depends on excess. In twenty six, starting in twenty sixteen, excess just went out the window. You know, you know what I mean, as, yes. as far as literature is concerned, right, right. And so I also felt more urgent in terms of not being didactic, but kind of, I don't know, zeroing in on why do I want to write this book? What does this have to do with how I feel about representation and so forth? And so I grew up in a really small town where Bob Dylan also grew up. So I kind of love that. This is also inadvertent. The, the pub date, May 24th, is Bob Dylan's birthday. Actually, it was the date that they picked after they moved it because of the supply chain issues. So I'm kind yes. of feeling, oh, it's blessed by Bob Dylan. And so in my Facebook group, somebody, well, I guess I should back up and also mention my other connection to medicine is my father is a physician. He's an anesthesiologist and he has worked in our small town forever for slightly different reasons than Jungmann. And, but part of it is the anesthesiologist is one of the most important doctors in the hospital because you can't have birth or surgery or ER without the anesthesiologist, which means my father like really worked really, really hard. And part of it is they couldn't hire a quote unquote, I guess, an American born doctor to do this for such little pay for 24 seven, you know, being on call and so forth. So my father was a very indispensable member of our community. And Somebody very proudly posted a picture of their new bumper sticker, and this was when Trump was getting into his, we have to nuke North Korea, and he was getting in those big fights with um, Kim Jong-il, I believe it was. And the bumper sticker said, every day, 152 species go extinct, and North Koreans need to be next. 
So that was in your book. I mean, that 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 motto or whatever you want to call correct. it. Maybe it wasn't on a bumper sticker. Oh, how terrible. I did not realize that you had actually seen that. That's right. So and that was the pivotal moment for me as in my personal life where I felt that, you know, this, you know, my father's also kind of small. He's not quite as short as Jungman, but here, this little Asian guy who helped you birth your child, saved you from your chainsaw accident, saved your life 80 million times, this man is what looks like a North Korean. And so it sounds kind of simplistic. Terrifying. But yeah. Absolutely not. I, I just don't even get that. Well, I felt like it was something that you just used as an example, like kind of overdid it on purpose. I did not realize it was something that had actually happened. Exactly. Well, that's exactly what I'm talking about with 2016. Everything went out the window in terms of normalized behavior. And for me, just to know our town is so small. I know everyone in our town. So just to know that these people want to kill my parents, who are both born in North Korea and basically migrated you know, during these migrations during World War II and then during the Korean War, it just made me feel like I want to just humanize Yongman to show that under, you know, behind this tiny Asian man is an epic story of bravery and courage and, you know, some folly as well and some being a jerk, but just, I guess, showing he's a fully formed human being because how could anyone just call for genocide so casually and put it on a bumper sticker? See, that exactly, you caught how much that should be satire. Absolutely. And I mean, well, yes, but in a terribly sick sort of way. And you also think like somebody like Yungman or your dad, you know, they went through so much that most of us have no concept of. I mean, our lives have been a thousand times easier than somebody that is going through what they have gone through. And so then to, to dehumanize it is even, I think, more disgusting. Exactly. And then even, but then even just like when his grandson is complaining about not getting his iPhone, there's also that. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Right. Well, but yes, the everyday. Yeah. That everybody, uh, I I don't know. I, that there were a couple of questions I had for you. Well, first that whole Minnesota area, like I'd never heard of all those towns with iron and surrounding the word iron and horse's breath and all of that, but also that neighborhood, I think it was in St. Paul. Is that a real neighborhood? Edina is a real place. Every day I need attention. But do they have like the the types of like a neighborhood like you were describing with all the names and everything? Or was that just being fun and making fun? They're, they don't have the custom place, but there are many neighborhoods like that. You know, for instance, one of my friends lives in one where they ran out of street names. So they just named them all out of elements in the periodic table. Oh. <laughs> I know it's like, oh, I'm lost on tungsten. Or, so do you know what I'm saying? Like it, it, they're yes. so new. And stuff. And what's funny too is so horse's breath is not real. It's a little bit of a play right. on go, like Gopher Prairie and so forth. But uh, the actual town names near us are, you know, there is a town called Iron. There's a town called uh, Mountain Iron. There's a town called Bawabek, which which means town of iron in Ashinabe. <laughs> I kind of wanted to kind of play a little bit very affectionately on these names that are either a Native American mispronunciation. Or they somehow shove the word iron in it. And they all sound so similar. And I just thought that was really funny that they're all right there together with names that were like hard to distinguish. Oh, absolutely. They all, they all have some kind of iron or there's like vermilion and there's Lake Vermilion because the, the color of the aura is like vermilion. 
it's just fun. Or there's so many lakes. I think I might have made this joke that every that there's so many lakes that the extra ones they just called Sand Lake. <laughs> All of them. Yes. There's like, because our front, you know, when people say, oh, we had a cabin at Sand Lake, I just said, you know, all the lakes are called Sand Lake. We had a cabin on Sand Lake as well. Exactly. (laughs) Which Sand Lake, right? Exactly. (laughs) Well, so I'm sure you had to do a lot of research and I understand that you actually got to go to North Korea, one of the few American journalists that's been there since World War II. Is that correct? Yeah. What was that like? Well, part of this also kind of goes back to your question about why did the book take 18 years? Part of it is... As the book was evolving and I wanted to know when I, I slowly, the book used to be more about Einstein and, you know, he was like the guy who lost the lawsuit first. Now he's the guy working at the Mall America. But then as Jungman's story started taking over more, I needed to know more about his background. So in a weird way, a lot of this of what happened, that kind of guided or even pulled the research along. So like when Jungman decided, like I decided he was going to be an OBGYN. Uh, it's a specialty I know nothing about. It took me probably about a year to set up until I networked enough, until I found someone who would let me into the hospital. And I was actually embedded with a third-year medical student, so I went on their entire OBGYN rotation. And I have another friend who's a gynecologist in New York, and she let me follow her around as well. And I was able to follow around a bunch of other people. But then when the North Korean um, theme became more apparent, I just I just had this urge. I just felt like I have to go. I have to put my feet on the ground there and see what that's like. And there's it seemed like a crazy, you know, thing to need. And then what happened is in 2008, a bunch of students at Brown, they were in the East Asian Studies program. They were studying Chinese. And they found um, someone in China who was like a fixer who could bring us into North Korea because you have to come um, through a third country. You can't fly from the U.S., obviously, to North Korea because we have no diplomatic ties with them. You also can't fly there from South Korea. So the students needed some faculty to bring that to go with them on this academic journey. And then I will also back up in general, they don't let Korean diaspora Koreans, Korean Americans in particular into North Korea, precisely because our very existence suggests North Korea is not the best world's best place ever. Because if it is, why are why do Koreans exist in other places? So through a very wild confluence of events, I did volunteer to be the faculty leader. And then the other man who was also, he was the Japanese history specialist, he dropped out because that was also when they were doing a lot of missile testing. Um, he was also not Korean American, he was white, and he just decided he, he didn't want to deal. And then also, well, I should also mention the State Department told us not to go um, because it was very dangerous and there's no consulate there. So if we something happened, we'd probably be stuck like that young man, um, Otto Warmbier, who ended up dying. Right. But, you know, for me, I just kind of felt my father had always wanted to go back and he had died. And so I just thought, I just have to go. And then through another weird coincidence, the students were clever enough to apply for our visas in a much smaller outpost in China. They, they went to Shenyang instead of Beijing and through some very tricky machinations, they were able to get me on the list like as a group. So because they did question, why is this Korean person want to come? We need to know more about her. They actually just said, oh, you know what? She's traveling. She's a professor. If you want us to come, you'll just have to put her on the list. And kind of they ended up chickening out because I think they wanted the prestige of having this group from Brown. So when that happened, I I added my mom 
to the list, which added a even bigger layer of um, chaos to the whole thing. But, you know, my mother also really wanted to see North Korea again. And so, uh, yeah, so we were able to, on this group visa, go to North Korea, and we were there for five days. And because of some other strange thing that happened, a student took an unauthorized photo for which we were almost all arrested, except she turned out to be a Chinese national. And because they have diplomatic ties, they actually couldn't do much to us, except they like, took all our pictures out of our camera. Because that day was somewhat ruined, they took us to a different place instead of the collective farmer where we were supposed to look. And it was in Kezang, which is the imagined place in that border, that border area where the exchange zone, where in the novel, uh, people actually would give up their weapons, North and South Koreans, and just kind of hang out by themselves and be people again, and particularly the soldiers, because a lot of them were actually child soldiers. They were 18, 19, even younger than that. Although a lot of the American soldiers were only 18 and 19 too, I will add. People matured much faster back then, it seems like. But so these were all these weird coincidences that actually allowed me because, you know, I would never have been able to plan to go to this place. But weirdly enough, once I was there, all this just happened. So I was able to spend a couple hours just kind of smelling it and just seeing what it looked like. And it, so I'm just incredibly grateful that, that all these things kind of happened, even though I, I was never sure that they would. And that I just felt much more confident about writing about this place now because I'd been there. I think it makes a very big difference. You can look on Google Maps all you want, but I think being in a place and as you mentioned, the smells and the feels and just actually being on the ground, wherever it is, it's much harder to write about it if you haven't been there. How did your mom like it all? Like, what was it like for her? Oh, and I will add, there's almost no Google Maps in North Korea. <laughs> so, Oh, really? Okay, see? No, but you know what? You're going to laugh. So that leads into the thing with my mom. So, you know, my mother is from North Korea and students were all like, oh, she's going to have such an emotional reaction. But as I allude to in the novel, no, 99% of North Korea was bombed by the Allies, where 96% of South Korea was also bombed by the Allies. So when my mother went there, there was nothing there that she that was familiar to her. There was nothing because everything was bombed and it was rebuilt to a kind of Stalinist masterpiece. And then the only thing, and I feel like this is a satire on its own, practically, or a deep irony. The only thing she recognized and was emotionally connected to the whole time was when we were going to visit the Kim Il-sung. So Kim Il-sung was like the first quote unquote president of North Korea. And he's, he's kind of revered as a god. He's just kind of like in the novel, his, his body is kind of mummified and they kind of worship it as a god. So they have his birthplace, which is kind of interesting because it's a log cabin in a place where there's really not a lot of trees. So it's kind of almost as if, well, if Lincoln was born in a log cabin, like every president has to be born in a log cabin. So this log cabin sort of memorial that's on the top of a mountain had a fence. And then on the fence, there was like a kind of gourd. Not quite the same kind of gourd that's in the novel, but my mom was like, oh, I recognize this gourd. Well, even worse, the gourd was made out of plastic. Oh, no. <laughs> so it was, so for her, it was just kind of, you know, and then there were all sorts of things. Again, as I was telling you, we weren't, they don't let in diaspora Korean. So they told us not to speak Korean. Like a lot of the East Asian language students knew how to speak Korean, but they didn't. But my mom couldn't help herself and she kept speaking in Korean. And, you know, we got in trouble. The only good thing is that Clinton had just been there rescuing those journalists. He had literally been there three days before. So I really feel like we got super lucky because 
I think they were in a good mood and also probably didn't want to have another international incident so quickly (laughs) thereafter. But I feel, you know, I love my mother. She just broke a lot of rules and we're actually really lucky that we got out, especially considering what happened to the other guy who just stole a poster. Were you anxious while you were there? Oh my God. I was so anxious. And I actually didn't realize it until we got back into China. I just like collapsed in a puddle and I didn't realize that I'd been holding so much in. We were so nervous. I mean, especially after, you know, what happened when the student got busted for the photos, they were so much like, you can only take photos when we tell you to, but, you know, we're kind of like, ha ha, right. And everyone's kind of secretly taking photos. So we're sitting on the bus because their infrastructure is so bad, like everything's breaking down. So we're sitting on the bus, middle of the woods totally bored. And here I was thinking, oh, I should secretly take a picture of this picturesque bicycle leaning against a tree. But then I thought, I will not. And then the next thing we knew, are there these soldiers swarming out of nowhere. Like we had no idea. It was like, we're in the middle of the woods, swarming on the bus. Um, the guy is screaming, someone took a picture, someone took a picture, which is ironic because if I would have taken a picture, I would have been like, oh no, it's me. So the student Fessed up, and they dragged her off. They dragged her off the bus. They disappeared for hours with the guy. The guy comes back crying. <laughs> we had no idea we were all going to be arrested. So yes, that was kind of um, the trip. It was, and oh, and then just sort of, we knew we were being surveilled, and people had fingerprints on their glasses. So it seemed like people might have come in while we were sleeping. <laughs> I mean, just yeah, it was a little. It was a little disconcerting. I mean, we knew it was going to be like that. But at any minute, too, it also felt like if we slipped up and did something stupid, um, we might get arrested. And it's one thing to know it's going to be like that and another thing to actually experience it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because someone even, they were like, you can't bring in iPhones. So my um, somebody brought in something that looked like an iPhone. It was like an iPad shuffle, like an iPhone shuffle or something. But they still confiscate. And, you know, it made me think, like, how do they know in North Korea, like, what this is? <laughs> so interesting. It is so interesting, and I think we're so used to a different way of life that it had to be fascinating just to see how things operated there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just, you know, there was, like, at one point on the highway, there was, like, a person, like, sweeping the highway, and you never saw any garbage. I mean, just, it was very orderly. Well, there's been a lot of talk about that with the beginning of the pandemic and how China was able to marshal everybody and lock everybody down in a huge city. And, you know, people were cleaning the elevators every hour. I mean, it's just a different mentality, a different way of doing things, a different way to kind of marshal whatever help you need. Oh, definitely. And I, and I think we mostly spend our time in Pyongyang. And I think if you're a good party member, you you live in Pyongyang. So, you know, like my son, as I mentioned, is disabled, and we didn't really see a ton of elderly people. I'm fairly certain I didn't see a single like physically disabled person. So it's also kind of interesting, too, that there's this kind of social engineering as well. If you're a good party member, and I guess healthy, you, you live in Pyongyang. I mean, just walking around, you just saw everybody was also dressed in these kind of IBM type uniforms, and they were all going somewhere. It was just, it was almost like being in a movie. Because, you know, you know, when you go to New York, you kind of see things bustling around you, but then at the same time, you interact. But we didn't, we weren't really allowed to talk to people. So it was more like just watching the movie and not, we were really not allowed to do anything. Almost like you were on a set, but also like they were creating what they wanted you to see. So as you said, like good party members are living there. They had their kind of what they consider to be their best foot forward there. So that's who they want. That's where they want visitors to come in and see this is how well we're operating. Exactly. And the funny thing too, is that they, um, 
served us Western food, their conception of Western food, and it was incredibly copious. Most of it was fried, and it was incredibly copious in that, you know, so you felt bad not eating it, just knowing what the situation is like in North Korea. And then the other thing too is that I would so enviously looked at my guide eating this Korean food, but I couldn't say anything. <laughs> you're like, I'd really like to have what you're having. Yeah, exactly. Well, what surprised you the most while you were writing the book? You know, actually it came more recently because one of the things that I wanted to do was to decenter the idea of the Korean War from our conceptions of what we think about war, like valor and we we saved the Koreans from communism and so forth. And I thought I wanted to focus more on the survivors. And I, if I was going to do it in fiction, however, I also wanted to make sure it was very true so that everything had to be plausible. For instance, I cite um, Young Man watching The Great Escape in Korea. And it turns out that actually not only was shown in Korea, but that's Bong Joon-ho, the Parasite director's like favorite movie. Um, so one of the things that I did was just, I interviewed a lot of survivors and a lot of them mentioned powder falling from the sky and certain things about biological weapons, which the writer Nicholson Baker just wrote a book about using FOIA to find secrets from the CIA. And one of the things he concentrated on was biological weapons in Korea because the CIA has always maintained they never use biological weapons, but that's how what he found when he looked at all this stuff. And then when I showed him part of my novel, he said, how did you know all this? I said, I didn't know all this. I just said, I just talked to people and people talk about this all the time. This happened or they're trying to spread it using feathers and this and that. And then when I was watching um, one of Bong Joon-ho's movies, it wasn't Parasite. I'm a big fan of his. He had this wonderful movie called The Host, which is kind of almost a funny. His movies are always like so grim and funny at the same time which maybe rubbed off a little bit um, on me in this novel. So, he, But in the host, um, and this was also based on a true story, the, the Americans, because the Americans are still in Korea, wanted to dump a bunch of formaldehyde into our sacred river, the Han River. And of course, they, um, the Koreans protested because you know, it's, it's our sacred river, it's nature, but they did it anyway. So what happens in the movie, it creates like this weird Godzilla m monster that runs around and like tries to eat everybody. But there's this amazing scene when there's all these protests about the U.S. They're trying to get the U.S. out, you know, because they're poisoning the environment and other things. There's there's kind of this announcement that goes on, like they used to have in the demonstrations, going like, you know, everything's fine, you know, you should disperse, disperse peacefully. And at the same time, the thing, the same thing that's telling them sort of robotically to disperse is spewing like this gas, and everybody's falling and having these seizures. And it's kind of this weird, grim, but also funny scene because they're saying everything's fine, like da 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 da. And all these people are just falling down and dying. And then it made me realize, whoa, you know, this is also a decentering moment for myself where, no, you know, none of this is secret. Like in the Korean cultural memory, the biological weapons have always been there. And so he even, you know, Bong Joon Ho even like satirized it in this scene in this Godzilla movie. Where for me, I thought, oh, I'm such a good journalist, like, you know, I'm interviewing all these people, digging this stuff up. But it, it did make me realize that for people who are the survivors of war, the war does not end with them. And then so for Korea as a country, the war has not ended. And that things like the biological weapons, the stuff falling from the sky is just part of the everyday memory, as opposed to this crazy secret, you know, that people have to get FOIA to dig out that, you know, in Korea, they're like, oh, yeah, 
I remember, you know, people just died when this stuff came out of the sky that the allies dropped. That was one of the things that I was so curious about as I was reading your book. And then you mentioned it in your author's note, which I was very glad about, was the, the white powder coming out of the sky. I was like, the what? And so I was so curious about that and wondered if it had been something similar to what happened in Vietnam. But then I was glad that you mentioned it at the end and talked about that that was a number of people had mentioned it to you. It was something the CIA denied that subsequently the FOIA information and the new book had talked about it as well. But I thought that's just horrible. And you wonder what it is exactly. What that white powder is. Yes. Yeah, it was some it seemed like it was some kind of nerve agent. And they do know for sure, um, this is documented that the U.S. did use mustard gas and other things that they, the, like the Nazis used. Yeah. So, yeah. And the thing, too, is that a lot of the stuff that I dug up was actually even more egregious. But when you write fiction, you have to make sure it's still readable. So even though I want to talk about mustard gas or, do you know what I'm saying, or even um, what's funny, the the aesthetic vaginal surgery, which seems like it's satire. A lot of it is actually true, but the details for me were so hard won, including I got kicked out of a doctor's convention when I I told the truth. I said I was actually not a doctor. These details were so hard won that I started cramming them into the novel because I felt like, oh my God, I got kicked out. I got physically booted from this conference and had to go to a different conference to do this. And so I ended up writing a lot of nonfiction because people are always like, oh, you wrote a lot of articles while you were doing this. And it, I, some of it was psychically, I need to offload this. So I wrote, I wrote a piece like for The Atlantic about how OBGYNs, the people who deliver your babies, are no longer delivering babies because they want to practice surgery and make money. And it's kind of a societal problem. So I was able to just dump out all the details there and feel like I've done my duty and then let the book be the book. Well, and it's a good way to as you said, offload some of this information, but also educate people and pair it with your book. I mean, I always think it's very interesting when someone's written fiction and then they've written an article or articles elsewhere that are more nonfiction oriented, but that they tie in with the story. Yes, because it's all—it's like, I already know this subject really well. Right. right. I agree with that. Well, what about the title? How did you come up with that? Oh my gosh. The title, it's gone through 80 million titles. It was sold as First son of a first son of a first son of a first son because young man is like first son of a first son. And then it was ghost heart for a while because that was a kind of surgery where they drain all the blood out of heart and it turns white. There was, it was chaos theory at some point because I was doing a lot of stuff with fractals. <laughs> that sounds like a science book. Yeah, it was very sciencey. Um, yeah, chaos theory is fun. And it went through so many. Um, it had one of those kind of Juno Diaz, like super long titles, sort of Juno Diaz, Dave Eggers. Title. It was something like the brief, wondrous life of like Einstein, Alfred Nobel Quack, or something like that. And it gets so desperate. Like none of the titles seemed right. And I even had friends in, who are in publishing read the whole book. They're like, I just can't come up with a title. A really good friend of mine, Ed Lynn, um, we were at a writers conference. He always brings his Ouija board. So a bunch of us were playing on the Ouija board, trying to get the title, and the Ouija wouldn't talk to us. Um, that's how desperate I was. Literally, you know, I had my pen out. I was like, Come on, Ouija board. Talk to me. Tell me my title. It literally wasn't until I was so frustrated. I started looking up the Chinese characters that underline Yungman's name. And there is an iteration of that where it could be Evening Hero. And then when I, I started making the text more about how he is in late in life, can he be a hero? 
that became like a central question of the book. Then I was like, ah, it felt so good. We all just knew, like I told my editor, because I've been sending her dozens of titles. She's always like, eh. Oh, because one of them was like, I don't know, like Alien Nation. And she's like, oh, no, it sounds like he's from outer space. You know, <laughs> I thought I was coming up with great titles. And then we all just went, oh, when I came up with that one. Well, titles are tough because obviously it's everyone's first introduction to the book unless they've read it early. And so that's the very first thing they're going to see. And they have so many connotations, just like we've talked about with one sounding like a science book and one sounding like it's about aliens. <laughs> and so you really do, when you start trying to narrow it down, you want a title you like, but you also want a title that's going to send the right signals to the reader. And what do you think about the title? Oh, I love it. I think it's perfect. Cool. I mean, I wouldn't tell you if I didn't, but I do love it. <laughs> I think it has enough mystery to it too. Like yeah. who is the evening hero? I don't know. And I like the the for some reason. Yeah, no, I love it. And I think it's great because it clearly does tie in with him personally and then the mission he's on. Thank you. Well, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? Oh, man, I am constantly reading, except I've been reading in very fragmented ways. So I have, and <laughs> I don't know if you do this. I have several things going on at once. Definitely. Okay, great. So the first one, I love science-y, but really well-written nonfiction. This book is coming out soon. Um, it's called Virology, and it's by my friend Joe Osmondson. And it's just a collection of essays. Um, he is a virologist, so it is about the pandemic, but it is also about how viruses are such a potent metaphor for so many things. Um, and it, it also has goes back to how we treated, for instance, like the AIDS virus. And what have we learned? Are we still personifying person as virus and so forth? And it's just, it's quite masterful and just really engaging. Um, and then the novel, just sort of more the conventional novel I'm reading is Devil House by John Darnell, who is also the musician who fronts the group, The Mountain Goats. And I particularly, I've always been a fan of his work. He wrote another book earlier called A Wolf in White Van that was very trippy that I loved. And But he also wrote basically the pandemic anthem. It was called This Year. It was all about trying to survive, <laughs> trying to survive this year until someday things will get better. It was just, it was this song that everybody played. Um, and I'm also really excited because he has agreed to be the conversant for one of my virtual launches. So I'm I'm trying not to go too nutty, but The Devil House is, it starts out almost like a murder mystery, true crime, kind of hard boiled. There's this journalist guy. So it's a little bit also about the anime of suburbia. It takes place in Milpitas, um, which is a place I'm not familiar with, but now I am. Um, in It's kind of like in Northern California, but it turns into this, there's murder and misogyny, but it keeps twisting and turning around until it becomes this very tender, very violent look into the human psyche. It, I basically did not expect this turn because every time I felt like it was falling into a trope, because that's why we have tropes like true crime. Like we feel like we know what it is. So it's so masterful the way it just turns on this, on this murderer who has a mother who is in a violent marriage. And you just, you, you're the point of view just changes. You don't, you, you just end up like loving everybody and then just your guts just get ripped out <laughs> and handed out. Yes. So that's, that's quite the, um, that's a very big recommendation. And the third one is, it's a comic, it's a graphic novel called Made in Korea, which is written by a Korean adoptee named Jeremy Holt. And it's 
super trippy. I've recently really gotten into graphic novels. It's especially if you like something like Westworld. It's a super trippy but metaphorical and tender novel about a near future. As you can see, you that's my kind of jam. Near future where a lot of people are infertile, but they can buy um, a like a facsimile of a child. And then this family who's half Asian is interested, but they're not rich enough. So they get a cut rate one. But it turns out the manufacturer in Korea that the guy has learned how to make this thing sentient. So he made it cut rate and that's why they bought it. And then um, put it this way, hijinks ensue, <laughs> as well as many identity questions like what is what does it mean to be a person or identity? And it, it, just, it, it just blew my mind. So I'm so excited that there's really just so much great stuff to read in so many different formats. You can see I'm just kind of like bonking into stuff in my house because I'm just picking up these different things all the time. But that's great. And I love the fact that there are so many different things out there and in so many different genres and formats. And there's really something for everybody these days, it seems like. Exactly. And I will mention, I don't normally like audiobooks. For some reason, I can't sit there and listen to it. But I am listening to Devil House and audio because there's also, because it was enticing, there's some musical bonuses. But um, the author reads it and his voice is amazing. So I'm kind of like, okay, I shouldn't be so prejudiced against audiobooks either. Makes doing the dishes a lot more fun. Absolutely. It makes the laundry, all of that kind of stuff a lot more fun. Right? Well, Marie, thank you so much for joining me today on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I really enjoyed speaking with you. I had so much fun. So thank you. And thank you for reading my book so deeply. Loved it. Oh, absolutely. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. 
Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.